Okay, this is Boundaries Part 2, and this is about the Savior Complex. So it's going to be really good. Let me just start by prayer. Father God, I thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit. I thank you for the power of your word. Father, we thank you that you are love. You um, created relationships. They are so important. And we can trust your design. You created us. You created the people we love and care for. And Lord God, we can trust your word teaches us how to have healthy, happy, good relationships. So Lord, as we study this, I pray, Holy Spirit, speak through me. Lord, our relationships are so important, Lord. They're the most important thing in this life other than you. And so, God, I just pray that um, we would hear your voice today. We would hear your word. We would see your truth. We would grow and be empowered, Father. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Today's lesson is actually not for everybody. So you have to even see if you qualify. Cause, I mean, and I'm really serious because every, not everybody has this. Um, although I, most of the people that I know who listen or even are here, um, we would probably qualify. But honestly, there is a type of person that has extreme compassion, has big, big, big heart, so much love. So much love is a giver, not a taker. This person is not the taker type. This is the giver. This is the lover. This is the compassionate heart. This is the tender heart. This is who this person is. That's not the whole world. I mean, there are some people who are, you know, this is not my problem, you know, not my circus, not my monkey. And, you know, so we've got two ditches. And so people who are, this is not my problem people, like this is not the sermon. This doesn't, isn't going to be a problem. But for those of us who have major compassionate hearts and big, big lovers and, you know, we feel the pain of others and all of those things, this is, our ditch. And I, you know, and I was just thinking about this and it's funny cause I was, I sit right over here and I prepare and I really like teared up thinking about this for these ladies, for you guys, you know, I love you guys so much. I pray for you guys constantly. You're just a piece of my heart. And I was thinking, um, how wounded we've gotten, how much wounding I've had and how much wounding you guys have had, um, over how big we love and how we've gotten in ditches sometimes and not known it, and and just how heartbreaking that is. And I was just like, God, thank you that you have a balance. You have a balance that keeps us healthy, that gives us healthy relationships. And, you know, I was just sitting there, and it was literally like Jesus was saying, tell them thank you for loving. Thank you for having these big hearts. Thank you for loving so good and so big. Thank you for being a giver and generous and laying down your life and, you know, it, thank you. That's special. He tells us to love the way he loves, and that's so special that you care so much and you love so much. But he's like, tell him I want my job back. I'm the Savior. I'm the Savior of the world. So please step off my job. Please step back. Thank you for loving. I have a balance for you that will keep you healthy and keep the people in your life healthy. And when you step out of that balance, not only do you not become healthy, but the people in your life become unhealthy. So this is super important. But I just want to start this, this session. I'm literally like covered in goosebumps. I just want to say thank you for being lovers. Thank you for being givers. Thank you for being kind-hearted and tender-hearted. I mean, that, that thrills Jesus. But this lesson is to teach you how to protect yourself, how to walk in balance with that gift. It's a beautiful gift. But it will crush you and destroy you if you don't understand the balance. So we are going to give the Savior of the world his job back today. We're going to figure out how to love in this healthy way and not have the Savior complex. And so, you know, if that's not you, you, you can stop this podcast. It's everybody in this room because I know the hearts in this room, but um, not everybody. So, okay, so God, as even in my prayer, I was saying, you know, God – is the creator of love. There is no love outside of God. He is love. He puts love in this world. He puts love to people that don't even know him, who don't even love him, who hate him. He will give them love because he's a lover. He get, he's loving. And he, it, he is, you know, we know that Jesus' last words were, my peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. So God is love and God is peace. 
And so we have to look at the patterns of our life. Are they peace? Because, you know, last week I was saying how God says we know things by their fruit. Is the fruit of these relationships peace? Now, I'm going to preface this by saying some of the things I say today don't all apply in family relationships. Next week I'm going to talk specifically about husbands, wives, children, some of those tricky things. Um, And when I say children, I'm talking minor children, Um, not adult children. Adult children apply to all adults. That's the way, you know, God wants us to launch them out, but I'm talking about minors. But, um, you know, this is, we examine, the, the way our relationship is set up, is it creating peace? If it's not creating peace, then we know that somewhere along the way we have some bad fruit, and we've got to go back and make some changes and some tweaks, because not, not every relationship has peace every minute of the day, right? Every, the best relationships in the world, even our relationship with Christ, we go through some bumps. But this is not talking about going through bumps. This is about a pattern. Is there an overall pattern of peace or not? Um, If not, we've got to go back and look. Um, Okay, so here, honestly, it's just like the spoiler alert. The the two main points are you can't do it for them, and you can't want it more than they do. That's just like to start with. You cannot do it for them. You cannot want it more than they do. And the second you're trying to do it for them, and the second you're trying to want it more than they do, you have instantly stepped into a dysfunctional relationship. You have instantly moved into something that's unhealthy. You have set yourself up as the Savior. Um, You know, even Jesus himself does not infringe on our free will. But yet when we are trying to help people and save people, we step over their free will all the time. We have to, they have to want it. And again, minor children are a little different, so that's why I'm just prefacing this. But this is for all adult relationships. They have to want it. It's interesting when <clears throat> you guys know that what I do with the majority of my day, Iris can tell you, I'm on my phone constantly. Because what I do with the majority of my day and my week is counsel. I counsel people from morning to night, and it's my passion and my joy. I've learned some really tough lessons along the way. What, one thing I've learned is if they don't call me to schedule there's that whole lesson, that whole hour that I give them, sometimes I give them two hours, is I may as well flush it. I've learned the hard way. If they don't take the initiative to want to be free, there is no point in this whole conversation. I used to, I used to have people all the time say, will you please talk to so-and-so? They're in this terrible place. And I, I, love, to save, I love to save people. But I, I, now I'd love to do it in a healthy way. But I didn't understand the difference back then. Um, and it's taken me a long time to know the difference. So I used to rush, give them a call. <clears throat> and let me tell you, if somebody can talk, talk on your ear for an hour, two hours, three hours, I mean, they would talk, 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 but never make the changes. They just want to talk about it, but they don't want to change anything. And I learned, unless they call me, they're not really, that's somebody else trying to get them better, not them trying to get themselves better. And it doesn't work. So now anytime something like that happens, I said, I would love to talk to them, have them call me. And adult, I can't tell you how many 20, because a lot of kids in their 20s, that's a rough decade, and they lose their way. And I can't tell you how many parents have called me and said, could you talk to my 20-something-year-old daughter or son? Absolutely, I'd love to. Have them give me a call. Never hear from them. Because they have to get knocked down by life a little bit before they're really ready, you know? So my words are going to be as empty as their words, and then I've wasted all my time and their time, and I could really be helping somebody who really wants to help, or I could be spending some time with my family, or I could be resting for that sake. But it's a waste of time. So... We have to look, we, we, first of all, do they want it? And if you want it more than they do, and that means you're making more effort than they are, stop. Just stop. You're going to see this in the scripture today. Um, and, and what happens when we go chasing after them, we actually create a, a codependent relationship where they, because we're fixing their problems for them, and we make them dependent on us. They were never meant to be dependent on us, not even our adult children. They're not supposed to be dependent on us. They're supposed to be dependent on God. It's very unhealthy. So we, we create this codependency that, you know, and God wants them to be dependent on, on, the, on him, but they will be dependent on us, and they'll be looking to us for our hand, like I said in last time, instead of our heart, because we're constantly fixing the things that they actually need to suffer the consequences for. Um, now, before we get to, you know, I wanted to take one second because, you know, I can tell on myself, having spent a lot of time examining this and praying over this and trying to figure out what I was doing wrong, 
Um, it was probably 10 years ago when I kind of got an epiphany on all this and changed my life very drastically. But I, I had to realize some things about myself, and I had to be really honest. I enjoyed, I got something out of being their savior, and it wasn't healthy. It made me feel like they're going to really love me, and I wanted them to love me because I saved them. I was desperate for them to care about me and love me. And I'm like, they'll appreciate me then. They're going to appreciate me so much because look at what I saved them from. And I just want to be loved. So I was trying to get my love need filled by this dysfunctional person. And guess what? You ain't never going to get your love need filled by a dysfunctional broken person. That's a sick place to look for your love need to be filled. And it's got to be filled by Christ. It can't even be filled by a healthy person. I've, I've learned that in my marriage with my husband. Anytime I start to look, that's now a really healthy relationship, and it used to be a really dysfunctional relationship. But even now, anytime I start to look at him too much as that Savior before God, every time that happens, God lets stuff happen that makes me be like, okay, whoops, I was getting that all backwards again. You know, so we can't get our love needs filled that way. We also like to sometimes be the victim. Look at what, look at all I'm enduring, the, you know, the, the pilgrim progress with the big backpack on our backs, you know, just overwhelmed, and we get to be the martyr to the world of all we're enduring because of this person. You know, there's the martyr complex. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of hidden agendas um, sometimes in our savior complex. So one thing we have to do is examine it. Um, you know, I, I, work, I work really, really hard to be very guarded of myself on this now um, because I've just learned that it's a weakness of mine, and I have to be really careful, you know, at 100%. The motive can only be for one thing and one thing only, and that is truly to help that person. And when we're going to truly help that person, sometimes it can be some uncomfortable things for us, and we're going to have to be willing to be uncomfortable. So I'm going to talk about that more. Okay. So here's the thing. We cannot change them. We cannot even change ourselves. There is, there's no time in our life that there's not something in our lives that we would love to change about ourselves that we can't. Like, you know, we'd love to lose 20 pounds, or we'd love to get more fit, or we just fill in the blank, anything. This is from the, you know, we'd love to be better at budgeting. From the smallest to the biggest, we all have things that for, at any given time, we are trying to change ourselves. We can't even change it. Why? Do we think we can change this very broken person that we are pouring everything into? What, what are we doing? Um, that is the whole point of the cross. So it, we're literally trying to steal the power of the cross. We're literally trying to steal the power of the real Savior. Like this is the message of the cross. Nobody is able. Nobody has the strength to do it. We can't do it for ourselves. We can't do it for them. And, and so we have to alleviate ourselves of this overwhelming burden of doing this for everybody else because we can't do it for ourselves and we were not created to carry that. So when we start carrying all of those burdens for other people and listen, you know, of course, another ditch is the person I talked about at the beginning, the one that's, this is not my problem. You know, that is very ungodly and very unholy and very cruel. You know, so we carry it in that we pray, we love, we give, we do anything we can, but within the, the healthy parameters that I'm going to put out today. Um, so, um, but, the, but the main thing that we don't want to do is we don't want to try to become their God. And that is exactly what we do when we are, when we are creating these codependent, savior-type relationships. We try to become the God in their life, and we get just as hurt as they do. Everybody gets hurt in that thing. So we've got to get out of the way. Um, you, you know, last week I talked about how when we are jumping in to save people, we create a buffer between them and their consequences. Consequences are in nature, in God's relationship. Every, t every action has a reaction, and there is supposed to be a consequence, good or bad, to our behaviors and our choices and our decisions. When we don't allow those things to happen, we create an unnatural, unhealthy buffer, and it keeps that person from falling, and it keeps them from hurting from their bad choices, and we then elongate the, the season of, of pain in their lives. We literally create the pain and make it – we don't create the pain, but we allow the pain to last so much longer than it ever would have if we would have just stayed out of the way. 
If we let them feel the consequence of that decision, that's how they learn. But every time we get in the way and we try to save them and buffer them from the pain of that, of that decision, then they don't learn. Then it makes that bad behavior in them, we enable them to continue on and continue on and continue on. And meanwhile, their life is moving in a worse and worse direction. I mean, we all know that. How many people's lives are spinning out of control, and so we keep trying to fix it, fix it, fix it, and the spinning doesn't stop. We just get caught up in the tornado. Uh, that does not, fixing that does not stop the spinning in their life. It just sucks us into it. So I, I want to talk about um, a friend. I want to talk about two best friends, and it's Jesus and Peter. We know that Peter, James, and John were Jesus' three best friends. And, you know, Jesus had obviously healthy boundaries. So we can look at him and we can say, well, how did he handle things? We know that Jesus said, you know, how do people know I'm the son of God? And, people, I mean, Jesus said, who do you think I am? And Peter raises his hand and he says, I think you're the son of God. And he said, only the Holy Spirit can show you that. And then in the same breath, Jesus says, now I have to go to the cross. And Peter says, you know, no way, you're never going to go to the cross. That's wrong. Like how he rebukes Jesus for saying that. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You don't have the things of God in mind. You have the things of the flesh in mind. So one second he's praising him, and one second he's rebuking him. And it's Peter, you know, his personality, if you know much about his personality, he has this big, loud, walk in the room, take over the whole room personality, somebody that we would all like, you know, fun and funny. But Peter's always doing crazy stuff. You know, he's jumping out of the boat and singing to the bottom. He's cutting off the ear of the guy who comes after Jesus. He's, he's talking when he should be listening. He, he blurts out stupid stuff. And Jesus never gives him – he just covers it over. Like, he lets it go. Jesus isn't, like, nitpicking every little thing about this guy. But and we're not supposed to nitpick each other. We're supposed to – it says a wise man overlooks an offense. So we're not supposed to be – but there are lines and boundaries that when he crossed over, Jesus was like, uh-uh. You know, and so he crosses over. He says something that Jesus is like, that's downright evil. Like, that's wrong. And so Jesus says, you know, get behind me, Satan. He calls him on it. He's hard. That's pretty harsh, right? I mean, can you imagine if, like, we said that to each other, like, get behind me, Satan? You know, it's kind of extreme. But, but he dealt with it. Well, Peter became the rock on which the church was built. What if Jesus wouldn't have called Peter on that stuff? What if he's like, you know what, Peter's really a good guy, and he does so many good things, and I just don't want to hurt his feelings, and I'm just going to ignore, 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 excuse, excuse, excuse. You know what we do? We ignore and excuse a person to the point that they're no longer good. We literally ignore and excuse their goodness away. But Jesus had the wisdom to say, no, this, if I don't call you on this, you're never going to become the rock in which the church can be built. I have to call this out on you. You're one of my best friends. This is painful. I don't want to do it, but I'm going to have to do it. And because of that, Jesus enabled Peter to become the rock. So often we enable people to become the opposite of the rock, right? We enable them to become weak, codependent, sick, abusive, cruel, users, ungrateful, fill in the blank. But Jesus enabled, them, enabled him to become a rock because he, he wasn't afraid of conflict. He wasn't afraid to, to say, this is not okay. You crossed a boundary here. You can't do that. But when we don't deal with problems, we actually create much bigger problems. And we actually hurt that person so much more. We, we might be thinking, we might be lying to ourselves to say we're trying to protect them, but we're really trying to protect us because it's hard to do. It's awkward to do. It's, it's painful to do. So we're really, and, and what we're doing is we're putting our needs in front of their needs because it's hard to do conflict. They don't get the correction. They don't make the changes. They don't get healthy. And we become more unhealthy and they become more unhealthy. Moses had the Savior complex. Now, Moses should have a Savior complex, right? He was sent in to save the whole entire nation. So here we see there is a healthy Savior complex and an unhealthy Savior complex. Moses got unhealthy. I'm going to read this. It's in your first scriptures that you guys should have. And it says, Moses, so the people had just screwed up really badly. I'm going to put my glasses on. People had just screwed up really badly, and, and the Lord is really mad at them. So Moses doesn't want God to be mad at them. He's trying to stand in between. So he says, Moses says to God, but now if we will only forgive their sins, but if not, here we go, Savior complex, just erase my name for the record you have written. But the Lord replied to Moses, no, 
I will erase the name of everyone who has sinned against me. Now go, I lead the people to the place I told you about. He's like, move on. Look, my angel will lead the way before you, and when I come to call the people to account, I will certainly hold them responsible for their sins. The Lord sent a great plague upon the people because they had worshipped the calf Aaron made. This is after Moses was up with God, and, you know, they made the calf while he was down there. So Moses is like, well, let me pay for their sins. Like, let it be on me. And God's like, no, that's sick. He's like, no, they will pay for their sins. So Moses has the right heart, like so many of us, right? We have a right heart towards God. We have a right heart towards people. He really cared about these people. So he's just like, you know, well, if you're, if you're going to stay mad at them, let it fall on me. And that's what we do. We try to block that. And God's like, no way. Moses, that's not healthy. They pay for their sins. That's between them and me. That's not your... I understand I sent you in to save this whole people group, but you have now stepped over an inappropriate, unhealthy line. And even he was sent to save them, and yet there's still an unhealthy, inappropriate line of the savior complex. Another example, we've got Mary and Joseph. So we've got Mary. The angel comes, tells her she's pregnant, right? Then poor Joseph. We do not know how Joseph finds out, but somehow Joseph finds out that Mary's pregnant, and he obviously knows it is not his baby. And he's like, this is not who I thought she was. Um, and we know that Joseph decided to divorce her because back then when you were engaged, it was the same as being married somehow. You had to go through a divorce process if you were engaged. I guess it meant, you know, when you were engaged, it meant you were off the market to anybody else. And so anyway, they had to go through a legal process of getting divorced. So Joseph decides he's going to quietly divorce her, right? He's going to do it with kindness. He doesn't, he, it was the death penalty back then for being pregnant outside of marriage. So he technically had the right and was supposed to report her, and she was supposed to be stoned to death. Harsh times back then, right? But he doesn't do that. He's just going to not harm her, not hurt her reputation, but quietly bow out, but he's not going to move forward with the marriage. So have you ever wondered why did God not appear to Moses, I mean to Moses, to Joseph, when he, he could have sent the angel at the same time to Joseph that he sent it to Mary. He could have spared Mary and Joseph all that suffering of, you know, deciding to divorce, what do I do, the shock of it, and, you know, Mary going through the heartbreak. If Joseph was going to divorce her, why didn't he do it? Why did God do it that way? I got to tell you why. I mean, I, I, I believe it's because God had to see if Joseph could have healthy boundaries. First of all, would Mary be his idol? No. Second of all, would, you know, so he was like, that's not my values. Those aren't my standards. That goes against what God says to do. So I'm not going to make her my idol. I'm not going to rush in and save her. But I'm also not going to be some self-righteous jerk, you know, blabbing all over the place and making her name look bad and, you know, so here, Joseph has the perfect boundaries. He's kind. He's compassionate. He doesn't talk to everybody about it. He doesn't try to soil her name or give her a bad reputation. But he has boundaries. And he's healthy about it. And he's godly about it. And, you know, one of the blessings about this is, listen, if we're setting a godly boundary and we're truly pure in heart, we can trust God if for some reason we're wrong. God will show us. Look, he showed it, Joseph. And what's incredible is once he tested Joseph, because listen, this is the father of his son. You know, he handpicked this man. And we know all through Scripture that God tests our heart. From the beginning to the end of Scripture, God tests us. God tests us. God tests our character and our heart. He tested the character of the man who was going to be his son's father. But what did he test him on? Righteous boundaries, but doing it with compassion and in a godly way. I mean, of all the things you could test a person on, isn't that interesting that that was his test? But he passed with flying colors. And what's interesting is after that, the angel never appeared to Mary again. They always came to Joseph from that point on. From that point on, all the angels communicated directly with Joseph saying, you know, go to Egypt. Okay, now go back to Jerusalem. You know, it was always, but not until he passed that test of boundaries. Because it's important because you can't be healthy any other way. So, you know, we see... Uh, the perfect example, and by the way, isn't that interesting, interesting that the father of the Savior of the whole world had to be tested to make sure that they were healthy in a way that they weren't the Savior complex. Not trying to rush in and fix it for Mary, 
He didn't. Now, that's the savior of the world, healthy boundaries, the father. I mean, interesting, right? So we have an example for biblical boundary setting, and this is in your scriptures, Matthew 18, 15. Um, and I'm going to read it. If another believer sins against you, go privately and point out their offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won the person back. But if you are unsuccessful, take one or two others with you. Go back again so that everyone, everything you say can be confirmed by two or three witnesses. If the person still refuses to listen, take the case to the church. Then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. So here's, the, here's what I want to point out about this. There is a really healthy process. The point of the process is to win the person over. The point of all of this is to win them over. It is not to beat them up. It is not to raise ourselves up. It's, to, it's a process that is supposed to take care of us and them. All parties are supposed to be taken care of. The person who, who was you know, mistreated, is, there, he's not saying just ignore it. He's not saying just let it go. He's saying you need to go talk to that person face-to-face. You need to deal with it. And if that person is like belligerent and in your face, then you need to get a couple other people to go with you. Here's the thing. The first time is to be privately. You know, so often now when we're upset with somebody, we talk to everybody except for that person. We go to everyone and their dog. We are private messaging everybody on our Facebook page except for them, you know, to say what a jerk this person is and how this person is upsetting us and how this person is, you know, and we are, we are abusing that relationship. We, are, we, are, we have now become more guilty than they when we do that. You have lost all your ability to confront them because you have now, moved, you have now sinned against them. This, our friendships are sacred, and they are given to us. They are a blessing, and they are holy, and we have to hold them as sacred. So our point in ever discussing this with them is to, first of all, win them back over, and second of all, to protect their privacy. And, and, and we can go and get one or two people who we trust their godly counsel not the people, not necessarily even the people who love us most or them most. It's the most godly. It's who is the most godly. And when we get wise counsel, then, then we can go. But that should be the only reason we talk to anybody else about it other than the people involved. So there's steps. You know, second, I mean, Titus 310, and that's in there. Um, there's a process to, to, to godly boundary setting. And it says, if you read, it says, if people are causing division among you, a divisive person, you know, there are people in our relationships that, are, that, are, that divide. I mean, I very intimately know divisive people. And everywhere they go, they bring division. And it, it, is, it, it weakens every fab- fabric of the relationships around them. So it says, if you know a divisive person, give a first and second warning. After that, have nothing more to do with them. For people like that have turned away from the truth and their own sins condemn them, so isn't that interesting? You give them a couple chances. You don't just go in and whack them, you know. But after you have given them several chances, it says have nothing to do with them. You know, that's pretty strong. But it's saying don't, don't do that because they are committed. They have chosen this path. They are committed to a path. We are supposed to use judgment. You know, somehow, at least in my mind, I got confused thinking, like I was saying last week, that when I used judgment, I was judging and being condemning. But the Bible constantly tells us to use judgment. And judgment is not judging. And I explained the difference last week, so I won't go into all that. But, you know, it's using discernment. And we are called to use discernment. And it just says when somebody is committed to a path and you've tried several times, you have to let them choose their own path. And you've got to get out of their way. It's pretty strong boundaries, you know, and this is, but this keeps us healthy. He wants to keep the healthy people healthy. He tells us to do that because that's the only way for us to stay healthy. Another pitfall of the Savior complex is that we restore relationships too quickly and too easily. So you've got Joseph, and we all know the story, you know, how the brothers deceived him and, and, um, you know, sold him as a slave and betray, a slave and betrayed him, and it was horrible and all these things. And when the brothers finally came back into his life about 20 years later, he didn't just swing wide open the door. He tested their character repeatedly, not just once, not just twice, repeatedly. 
until he knew the truth about their character before he allowed them back into his heart. And then once he realized the truth about the character, he generously, completely, and totally forgave them. You know, a thing about a savior complex is we love so big that we hurt really badly, and when we hurt really badly, we keep throwing that thing back in their face. So because we love them so deeply and we feel so deeply wounded. But the point of, of Joseph is, you look, he completely forgave. He never threw it in their face again. But he also did not, he did not let them back into his life until he knew their character, until he had thoroughly tested it. Without that, you just are going to go, they're going to apologize, and I'm going to talk about that a little more. They're going to, they're going to apologize, and you're going to let them right back in, and then they're going to do it again, and then you're going to go round and round and round and round. You have to test your character. Sometimes we, let, we do not hold the boundary line because it's just so much harder. It's just so much harder to hold that boundary. We just want things to go back the way they used to be. We just long for what was. Maybe at one point it was healthy, and it's no longer healthy. And so we think if we just keep breaking that boundary for them, that somehow it can go back to what it once was. That never happens. We never go back to what it once was by breaking a boundary line. You never create a healthy relationship by allowing unhealthy boundaries. You only perpetuate dysfunction. So you want to keep the dysfunction going, then go ahead and break the boundary line, but don't think that you're going to go back to what it once was by breaking the boundary line, a healthy, godly boundary. An example of this is King David, and I put it in your, um, I put the scripture, it's 1 Samuel 24, 16 through 24. So you guys know that King David, he's not yet the king, and he lived in the, in the um, palace, he was raised as one of Saul's kids, basically. He then is a uh, you know, son-in-law to the king. His best friend, Jonathan, is back there. His wife, who he loved, was back there. He had his own palace back there. And now he's on the run. He's living in caves. He's living as a refugee. The only people that are surrounding him are 800 men, and it said they were disgruntled like criminals. He has like the, kind of the dregs of society surrounding him. That's all he's got. And... He's in a really, really hard – and this went on for years, by the way. So this wasn't like a quick, like a month or two. This was years that he lived like this. So finally, he's been living like this for a long time, and King Saul is hunting to kill him because King Saul was deranged, right? We know that King Saul had lost his mind, and God had turned his back on him, and he told Samuel – by the way, here's another boundary. He said, Samuel, don't go see him anymore. He's chosen a wicked path. Let him go. It's over. It's over between me and him. I'm going to give you something better is what he said. So, um, so, so God and Samuel had moved on, but meanwhile he's hunting down David, and he had gone into the cave. David and all his men were in the back of that cave. Saul is in there unprotected. No one knew that David was in there. He cuts a piece of the hem of, David, of Saul's um, robe, and when Saul got back down at the bottom of the valley, David comes out over the cliff and he says, look, I've got your robe right here. I could have killed you. You keep believing these lies about me. I could have killed you, and you, and you, I didn't. I spared your life. You're just believing lies. And what does King Saul do? He, and when you read these scriptures, he says, David, my son, you're a better man than I am. I'm so sorry. You know, and basically he says, I love you, and I'm going to do better, and you deserve to be the king, and someday you're going to be the king, and you're going to be a better king than I am. And he he says everything you know David was longing to hear. You know, so often when we have these relationships, we're just longing for them to say the magic words. And so King David hears Saul say the things he's dying to hear. So what does King David do? He says, finally I can go home. Finally I can get back to my wife, my best friend, my palace instead of living in this cave. He, he says, I forgive you. You go your way, I'm going to go mine. And he stayed in that cave, and he didn't go back into the relationship. Thank God he held that boundary, because later on, King Saul came back trying to kill him again. It would have cost him his life if he didn't hold the boundary line. But he knew that he had to be wise, and not just because he's longing to hear the words that you know when we're in these situations, we're like we just wish they'd say blah, blah, blah. And then when they do, I can just wide open my heart. No, you can't. That's an unhealthy boundary. Um, 
David just didn't fall for it. And, and maintaining healthy boundaries can often lead to a season that is very uncomfortable, very, uh, it would be so much easier if we would just cave. And so, so often we do just cave because it's easier. It was an, at how much of an easier path would that have been? Most likely David never would have become king. Most likely King Saul would have killed him. I mean, he, he was just, but, but we, our, God tells us to maintain wise and healthy boundaries to protect us. You know, he had a great plan for David. If David would not have held healthy boundaries, it would, he would have forfeited the plans and the blessings God had for him. Um, you know, there are just some people who are going to choose. This is something I had a really hard time with. I had a really hard time believing that there are just some people who are just going to choose a terrible path, and that's just the path they're going to stick to, and there's nothing I can say or do to change that. I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that I couldn't fix it. I just thought if I just say just the right thing, it's going to, the light bulbs are going to go off and the star, you know, fireworks and they're going to see it and their eyes are going to be open. And again, it's not that we don't try, but I have learned to not put my heart and soul and emotions into that. I'll still speak the truth, but I'm like, you're going to have to decide. I'm not joining you in that. You're, you don't get this heart. You don't get this, you don't get that intimacy. You know, that's not healthy. Um, okay, if you're taking notes, this is really a good one. An apology without change behavior is just manipulation. And that's the truth. An apology without change behavior is just manipulation. So have you ever noticed that in the Bible, um, Jesus never says, I want you to apologize to me? He never says, I want you to apologize. Because what does Jesus tell us? The Bible tells us that when we sin, we are separated. Our relationship with God is severed until we, what, repent and ask for forgiveness. Repentance is not an apology. Repentance is a change of heart. Repent means to turn and go the opposite direction. Jesus never says, apologize to me so you can have your relationship back with me. And by the way, look how healthy his boundaries are. He says, you have done wrong until you repent. Your relationship with me is severed. He says, repent, not apologize. We are an apologized society. You apologize for anything and everything's supposed to be fine. That's not biblical. And you see, what, what messes are people's relationships in? Oh, my gosh. Because an apology without change behavior is just being manipulated. I can't tell you how many times I was apologized to and really manipulated because I didn't understand this. I was like, oh, my gosh, they're not repentant. They're just trying to get me to shut up. They're just trying to get this thing to go away so they can move on. That's not repentance, and I'm not going back into relationship with them with that. Okay, so I want to look at Psalms 1, 1 through 3. I have that on there. Maya Angelou said, when someone shows you who they are, believe them. I love that saying. When someone shows you who they are, believe them. For so long in my life when people showed me who they were, I just wouldn't believe them. I'm like, no, you're really, really, really not that person underneath. I can see underneath. No, that is who they are right now. God can change them. I'm going to pray that God changes them. But guess what? They are not responding to God. And if they're not going to respond to God, they're not going to respond to me. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to speak the truth in love. And I'm going to go on with my peaceful life that my behaviors have, have set up for me because there, are, there is sowing and harvesting. And when we live in a godly way, we harvest a peaceful life. And I'm not going to give that up. Um, because when we don't believe people, when they show us who they are, we can forfeit our own future. And I'm going to show you this. Um, Psalm 1, 1 through 3 says, Oh, the joys, and it says blessed, different versions say to be blessed, to be envied. The amplified version says that you will be blessed, you will be envied, you will be a blessing. It will be joy of those who not, do not follow the advice of the wicked or, or hang around with sinners or join in with mockers. But, the delight, but they delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on it day and night, and they are like trees planted along riverbanks, bearing fruit each season. Their leaves never wither, and they prosper in all they do. Who prospers in all they do? People who do not give their heart to wicked people. It, and it doesn't mean we don't – here, again, the ditches. It doesn't mean we don't 
spend any time with people. It's not like we only spend time with perfect people. There is no perfect person. What it means is a person who displays a constant pattern of wickedness and cruelty, and I'm going to go into some of that, we do not give our heart to. We are not supposed to give our heart to. That's not who we share our heart and our soul with. You know, our friendships, our relationships, our people we share our heart and our soul, our most intimate details, right? Our friends are who we talk to about the things that matter to us most. Who are you sharing your soul with? Jesus ate with the sinners, the, the prostitutes. This is what you love most about Jesus, right? The fact that he loved everybody. But it says that Jesus did not entrust himself to them, which is very interesting. Entrusting ourselves to people is not the same as loving them. We love everybody. We love our enemies. We love everybody, but we don't entrust ourselves to them. We do not give them pieces of our soul for them to have control or power over. So it says that people who don't give themselves away to corrupt and ungodly people, it says to make a judgment call about their character, make a judgment call about the character of the people you are entrusting yourself to, because if you don't, it can affect your destiny. I mean, look at it. It says that people who make those judgment calls and don't entrust themselves to that type of person, it says they will be prosperous in all they do, that they will have peace, that their leaf will never wither, meaning that when you, everybody in life is going to go through some very difficult seasons, drought seasons. But even in the drought and the difficulty, you will continue to flourish in your soul. If you have the discretion about what? About who you entrust your soul to. I mean, look at the power of us being unwise. It affects how God can bless us. It's really pretty amazing. So don't choose the company of people who are choosing to stick on an ungodly, unholy path. It will destroy you. Now, one of the – this was kind of revelation to me, and I'm trying to think of the quickest way to do this, but um, in Timothy, and that's the next scripture you have, it says – You should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be very difficult times. And then it starts to talk about the very difficult times, and it says, for people, people. I just want you to think about that word, people, people, people. What is it about the very difficult times? People. And then it talks about all the things about their character, and I just don't want to take all the time to read all that. You guys can read it, but it says that they will – Um, You know, it starts off by saying they will be love only themselves and their money, and they will be boastful and proud and scoff God and all these things. And then it ends with with saying that they will deny the power of God that could change them. So it starts off with people being basically their own God, lover of themselves, and it ends with them not allowing the power of God to come in to change them. And what's interesting is, we, so what we have been told through Scripture that the end times are like birth pangs. And anybody who's been in labor knows that those birth pangs, the closer you get, the more frequent they get and the more intense they get. So we know those birth pangs are faster, 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 more and more intense. So the closer we get to the end times, the more these birth pangs will be more frequent and more intense. We have completely seen that in our society. I mean, they say that people are lonelier and more depressed than ever, that, you know, we have way more ways of communicating, but it's because, because people can't, don't know how to have healthy relationships with other people because of the list of these things. Because, but but what, what's interesting is, okay, so Matthew 24 tells us that there's going to be famines in the end times. There's going to be natural disasters. It tells us all these things that's going to happen to our environment in the end times. But what's interesting is we hear when we read in, in, in what I, that I just read to you in Timothy that the worst part about the end times are going to be the people. That's what God, more than the natural disasters, the social phenomenon will be more devastating than the natural phenomenon. And that's what the end times looks like because that whole scripture is warning us about what people will be like in the end times. Now, obviously not all people, people who love God have to be different, but, we're not, but, but as we near the end times, fewer and fewer people will truly love God, and more and more people will be, um, you know, their own God, as we were told at the beginning. And so it warns us, and then it gives these 17 characteristics of the last days that are in there that I'm not going to take time to go through, 
Um, <clears throat> but it says God is trying to protect us. He's trying to teach us healthy boundaries because as we move towards the end times, people are going to be treacherous. And if we are fooled into thinking that treacherous people, it's our job to put ourselves, because guess how that scripture ends? Have nothing to do with them. Uh, they will be unloving and unforgiving. They will be slander others and, and have no self-control. They will be cruel. They will hate what is good. They will betray friends. They will be reckless. They will be puffed up with pride and love pleasure rather than God. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. Have nothing to do with them. They are the kind who work their ways into people's homes and win the, listen to this one, and win the confidence of vulnerable women. Isn't that heartbreaking? Vulnerable, you know what you could say? Vulnerable, lonely women who long for love. Because why, why does he single out women? Because women long for love in a way that men don't. It makes us more vulnerable. I need love in a way my husband does not. So, he, so this type of person, it says that he will, they will worm their way into the homes of vulnerable women and win their confidence and then crush you. We can be so vulnerable thinking, oh, we're the light and love of Jesus that we allow this stuff. I used to literally welcome that through my front door. And it, and it would come in and it would do damage to me and my husband and and, I mean, everything. I would pour everything out. Our finances, my time, my this, my that, whatever. And it would bring all this destruction. And I would think I was being an angel of light. And I would be one of these vulnerable women. You know, and it, it singles us out because we are subject to wanting to be loved so badly. Um, so it says don't, don't do it. Don't let those people into your life, into your heart, and into your home. And we, and here's the thing, those of us who have this savior complex, we think we're doing it because we think we are being God's hands and feet. And we are to be God's hands and feet, but we are to use discretion and wisdom. We're not to be indiscriminate in the way we love and who we love and who we give ourselves to and what we live in our, in our front door. It, God says, don't let those people run you ragged. Stop letting them run you ragged. You're exhausting yourself and you're giving yourself away for no good fruit. God says, tells us to stop doing it. What's interesting is God tells us to love people, and I spent all last time talking about this, so I'm not going to again. Love people the way we love ourselves. And we learned last week what that looked like, right? This one, interestingly enough, the number one thing, that it, the vice of you know, the end times is people who are lovers of themselves. So this gets confusing because people are like, well, we're supposed to love people the way we love ourselves, which I explained last week. But then lovers of ourselves is the number one vice. Again, that means we become our own God. It's what's, what's right for me, what's best for me. It's all about me. It's I put me first. And that is now hailed as something wonderful, right? Okay, so what does it say? One of the things that it talks about in there was abusive. And that one stuck out to me. I just felt a need to talk on abusiveness because the closer we get to the end times, the more abusive. I, I'm like horrified by some cartoons. They're abusive. They literally abuse each other. I've been in my girlfriend's home, and her kids are all hitting each other. And, they, and then there's these cartoons, and all the cartoons are hitting each other and fighting and being mean and cruel. And I'm like, these kids are like, this is like you know, chaos. I mean, it's terrible. I mean, but, it, but I'm saying, look at the abusiveness of language. Look at every time, everything you try to watch on TV is about murder, rape all types of horrible abuse, abuse, abuse. And, and you just see so much abusiveness and cruelty, abusive language. The closer we get to the end times, the more abusive people's languages. You just think about how people speak now. Just, just listen to the movies. But they speak in a way that is so abusive and we don't even think twice about it. But, you know, like I told you, I think, last time, I, I had an employee who used to just curse and, you know, like say things and, you know, I was like, I'm trying to show him Jesus, so I put up with this stuff. And now I know I have learned very clearly that I now just let people go real fast like that. But there was a time where I thought that I was winning him to Christ. By the way, I never won him to Christ because I allowed something unhealthy into the relationship. I allowed him to be abusive. Um, once you let somebody be abusive, guess what? It's a slippery slope that does not end. It just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and I'm going to show you why we are not supposed to tolerate abuse like doormats. I'm going to show you scriptures. 
Proverbs 22, 24, it's in your scriptures, and it says, don't be friends with or befriend an angry person or even associate with hot-tempered people. I mean, it's like don't have anything to do with them. You are supposed to have healthy boundaries. I mean, how great is that that God gives us not just permission but commands that we not take that abuse? Proverbs 19.19 says, hot-tempered people must pay the penalty. They must pay their own penalty. What have I been saying? Let them sow and let them reap. They lose their relationship with you if they abuse you. Sorry, if you rescue them once, you will have to do it again. That's what I just got done saying. And once you allow that kind of abuse into your relationship, once you allow that kind of language, once you allow that, that will never end. It will just get worse. And that's what it says. It will say you'll just have to keep doing it. Is that the way you want to spend the rest of your life? Because you're now setting up a precedent to allow that for the rest of your life. Um, we are, everything in nature is reaping and sowing. They reap what they sow. They reap what they sow. <clears throat> Do not rescue them. Stop rescuing them. You're wearing yourself out. You are involved in a dysfunctional, codependent relationship, and they have to learn that there is a price to be paid for that type of behavior. Now, when God says, how many times have I read today, don't have anything to do with them, don't have anything to do with them, don't have anything to do with them, cut them off. I used to be like, oh, my gosh, this is kind of harsh. Like, man, that, might, that kind of seems cruel to me. It kind of did. It felt kind of cruel to me until I sowed and reaped a few rounds of that you know, and learned, but um, we actually find out that God is protecting his children. He's protecting. So we all, if you've ever had, if you ever have ever had two children and you have one kid beating up the other kid, what do you do? You stop and protect the child who's being beat up, right? Like that's what we do. That's what, and I mean, even though we're sinful, we know to do that for our own children. God does the same for us. Daniel 7.25 says, and I don't have that one on your list because it's just, it says the, at the um, end time, Satan will try to wear out the saints. The end of time, Satan will try to wear out the saints. I can't think of a better way to wear out the saints than healthy, unhealthy, dysfunctional, abusive, cruel, time-sucking, emotion-sucking, uh, you know, using ungrateful, unkind people. Because he says in the end times, it will be people that will be the worst part of the disaster of the end times, more so than even the natural disasters. It is people. So God is trying to teach us something here. And this is on your sheet. It says on 1 Corinthians 15, 33, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. How many times does he have to say, don't be naive, don't be vulnerable, don't be misled? Don't, I will bless you if you will discriminate. Use discretion in who you give your heart to and who you hang out with, and, and I will bless you, but if you don't use those boundaries and if you don't have that discretion and that wisdom and if you're scared to death to have somebody to say, you're judging me, and if you don't understand what that really means, which if you don't, go back and listen to last week, then you will be manipulated, used up, and exhausted and have nothing left for the good, healthy blessings that God wants to give you. So I, listen, I just do too much counseling not to know that the enemy is doing everything he can to destroy every healthy, functional relationship there is. And then if you can't get into your, like, say, marriage relationship or family relationship, he will throw so many things at you to try to, the shiny, you know, I have to be the savior, jump into the lake, best friends, back in those days when I was this person that I'm preaching about, my girlfriend, Kat, who you guys I talked about last week again, she said to me, she said, do you know what happens to you? I'm like, no, what? She said, Somebody's out in the lake, and they're like, help, help, help. She's like, you jump in the lake. You, you know, they push you under. They step on your head. You're drowning. They launch themselves out. She said that you use all your energy to get them onto the shore. Now you're out in the deep end. She said, and they're all partying on the beach with a big bonfire and a cocktail, and you're out in the middle of the lake still drowning because you gave it all away to somebody who really – just wanted to bail out, but didn't want to change, didn't want to do better, right, didn't want to do better. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that's exactly what's happening, you know. And I literally went through and cut, 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 cut. And can I tell you, cutting dysfunctional people out of my life, I would love to say it felt so good. Oh, it felt terrible. I loved them. They were, not, they were people I truly loved. I loved them. I cared about them. I didn't want to do it. And can I tell you, when, but when I did it, because I knew it was what God was asking me to do, I didn't do it for my own self-preservation. I literally did it because I came to understand these principles 
that for me to go where God wanted me to go, if I could either hang on to this bottom-dwelling lifestyle I was on, or I was going to have to cut, them, cut it all off so I could buoy up over the water, and that way I could really help people who really wanted help. And so I did it for my calling. I understood if I was ever going to go to where God meant for me to go, bless the people God was meant for me to bless, I was going to have to let go of the way I'd always done it in the past. And it hurt. It really did. I sobbed and I cried and I mourned. I really did. So, you know, it, I, but then once I was free of it, when I was finally emotionally free of it, I was like, oh, my God, obedience pays off so much. It didn't feel good at the time. But my goodness, uh, the freedom that came to me, the relief that came to me, but it wasn't instantaneous. It was a step of faith. But then I was like, oh, my goodness, that, those were awful relationships. That was, I wore myself out for this. I, you know, and so it's like once you get free of it and you finally are emotionally clear, your emotions have to be cleared away, you're so grateful. It's so worth it. Peter, you know, it is, and, and that was all last lesson, so that's why I haven't said much about it this time, but you know, all last lesson was you, if you really care about people, you are going to set healthy boundaries and not let them behave that way. It's not good for them and it's not good for you. You know, um, any chance they ever have of ever getting free of that stuff is for them to suffer the consequences of their, the, what, they, what they are sowing so they can reap what they sow so they can learn not to reap those seeds. You know, so that is the only way. But, you know, we also, we also, I think we think it's wrong to have wise self-protection. It's like somehow we feel guilty to have healthy boundaries. It's just a lie from the pit of hell. Satan wants us to feel guilty about using wisdom about our own protection. And that's not in the Bible at all, but somehow we think that it's biblical to be the, that martyr person. Um, Proverbs 4.23, which is on your sheet, it says, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. And I said last week, and I'll say it again, you are responsible to guard your own heart. You are responsible to guard your own heart. God doesn't guard it for you. Your husband doesn't guard it for you. Your best friend doesn't. You guard your own heart. You use discretion. You use wisdom. God says everything else comes out of it. And we have to be aware that there are a whole lot of wolves in sheep's clothing, a whole lot of people who do God talk. There's so many God talk. Can I tell you in my business, when I see someone driving up with a big giant fish and Bible verses written all over it, I'm like, well, here comes the shysters. It's horrible. I have, I have godly men who work for me, and they have worked for me for years now. They don't have a single fish or anything, but they have stood the test of time. They have godly character, and they are witness on the job by who they are, which is what you were even saying. Um, and every single person, I, I, just on this job I have right now, two, two big fish people. And I tell you not, when they drove up in my driveway, I'm like, oh, brother, they came recommended. But awful, arrogant, abusive, overcharging, underhanded in the way they – I mean, terrible, terrible. I, I feel like the louder somebody feels that they have to, you know, announce it to the world, the more they're really using it to manipulate and abuse. You know, but for a long time, I mean, when, listen, when I got this house, we hired contractors because their whole crew was on the front of the and we were like, oh, look at this. God has sent Christian wonderful people. And my husband and I were so happy. And, I mean, we were like in tears. Well, let me tell you something. Uh, six months later, we were in tears, but for a whole other reason. I mean, they were all over town. We all over town. They hurt families all over this town. We still haven't recovered from what they did to us. You know, so we have to be wise. We can't be like, you know, well, they talk about Jesus all the time. So what? God says, don't listen to talk. Look at their behavior. Are they honest? Are they decent? Are they kind? Listen, are they overly kind? How many people know the sugary, sugary, sweet type? I have learned the hard way. The more sugary, sappy, sweet, I'm like, mm. I now have like a little radar that goes up. I'm like, I'm going to watch. I'm going to stand at a distance for a while and watch that. Because the people who are really true and good are people who are straight up. And straight up people aren't sugary sweet people. Straight up people are straight up people. You know, they're honest and they'll tell you the truth about what a situation, you know, um, those of us who are from the north, the east, you know, people are what they are. They really tell it to you straight and you know where you stand with people. And when I moved here, I was so confused because I'm like, well, they said... And people are like, yeah, but people don't say what they mean. I'm like, they, well, then why are they saying it? I was so confused because I'm used to people being like, I don't like you. 
because I listen, I was a Republican in an all Democrat uh, neighborhood, and my neighbors were like, "I don't like you. I don't like your politics." And I'm like, "Okay, cool. I can I can do this. Come have a glass of wine with me." They were all my best friends. I didn't care that they didn't agree with my stuff, but we were honest with each other, really honest, and that built a, a foundation that, that we don't have to agree on everything. But we just but we can't be fakers, you know. We can't be fake. It's so fake. So anyway, here here's a test. I got to wrap this up, but here's a test. Ask yourself, you, here's a litmus for dysfunction. Am I able to be strong in every other area of my life, but unable to be anything but weak in just this one area? Typically, there's a just this one relationship, just this one situation, just, and it grows and grows and grows and grows until it consumes your life. If it's, I can, I can be healthy in every area but here, and all my relationships are healthy but everywhere but here, you know you have allowed the bedrock of a dysfunctional, usually savior complex, you're usually leaping in to save something that you were not supposed to save, and you haven't been straight up, and you haven't been honest, and you haven't dealt with something. Um, and I'm going to tell you the number one reason, and I'll probably get into this more next time we get together, but... Um, the number one reason why people do not set that boundary is that they're afraid. They are afraid of losing the person. They need, they need their approval. They need them to love them. They need, they need this so badly. And as long as we feel that overwhelming, exhausting need for that person, that person is set up to be able to abuse us from here to kingdom come. So um, 2 Timothy 1.7, which I put on your sheet, it says, For I did not give you a spirit of fear, and you guys have heard me preach on this so many times, but fear is a demonic spirit. I did not give you a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. As soon as you give in to fear, you have forfeited your power, you have forfeited true love, and you forfeited a sound mind. And I think we've all been there enough to know that we have lost our sound mind, our power, and our love because we were afraid to... Confront and set boundaries, and it just leads to utter chaos. We have to ask ourselves, why are we so willing to tolerate whatever abuse, dysfunction, unkindness, cruelty, whatever this person or this situation or this, you know, remember the scripture says that we don't fight against flesh and blood, the principalities, powers, and dark forces. Everything is spiritual, Everything boils down to spiritual. So, you know, have you ever asked yourself, why am I so willing to tolerate this in this one area? Could it maybe be a spiritual root? Maybe it's something bigger than just this whole thing. And it, will I let, will I trust the God of the whole entire spirit realm, the God of the whole world, the God of everything? Um, will I trust him that his way out of this dysfunction is to set up healthy boundaries, to keep myself safe, to keep myself healthy, to keep myself, can I trust that? Can I, can I believe that and not, not believe the lie of Satan that that is selfish? We've already established, like we said last week, that it's best for them. But really this week, I wanted to speak to all of you guys and me to say it's also best for us. And by the way, it's okay to care for them and for ourselves. You know, I, I, when I first got a child, I'm like, all that matters is that kid, you know. And I was like, got into that a little bit, and I'm like, wow, I'm going to make a monster. I was like, Reagan, you matter, and Daddy matters, and Mommy matters, and everybody in the family matters. So we figure out what works for everybody. Everybody matters. I was like, what am I doing? And, and she never acted out on it. The Holy Spirit just revealed it to me. I was just like, because I was watching all my friends' children be like little monsters around me. I'm like, oh, my gosh, they're three feet tall, and they're like the devil with their heads spinning around. I'm like, what is this, you know? And I'm like, because they say the only thing that matters is you. And I'm like, that's not biblical. The whole everybody matters. Every single soul matters. But we somehow have come to this belief that it's noble not to matter, except for it's not biblical, and you're going to get wrecked. You will get wrecked and you'll be worn out, and you'll be exhausted, and you won't be able to help the people who really matter, which, by the way, for me, are you guys. You know, these are the people, like, if I would have let all those people who really didn't want to make the changes, 
and I was chasing after, if I would have continued to pour all myself into that, God, by the way, God didn't bring any of the people who really did matter into my life until I cut those off. And then God brought to me people who really wanted the word and really wanted to change and really, and they were good investments and they bore good fruit because God tells us to make wise investments with our time and our money. And we're going to talk about that probably next week, but they were good investments. And, you know, if we wear ourselves out for those who don't really want it, because we're trying to play the Holy Spirit to somebody who doesn't want it and we're not their savior, um, we're not their savior. We pray, we, we give them wise truths, we never stop loving them, we never stop loving them. But we also don't stay in that close relationship and enable. So anyway, I just want to close by just saying thank you for being the loving people that you are. You guys are givers. You're loving and you're good-hearted and you have a shepherd's heart for people you love deeply. So thank you. But don't get run over thinking that you're doing it for the kingdom of God because you're not. Satan is doing that to you. The enemy of your soul is doing that to you. And so we have to be brave and bold and sometimes make the uncomfortable decision to set a boundary that is right and godly. And we've got to stand by it. And even when we're tested and we hear the things we want to hear, like King David, we don't buckle. We just say, this is how it's going to have to be for me. This is what I'm going to have to do. And you can either join me or not. And if you don't, I, don't, I wish you well. I love you. I bless you. But this is, I'm staying right here. Let me just do this. Lord God, I just pray, Lord, seal this word. Father God, this is so hard to have the balance, Lord, not to be in either ditch, God. So often we bounce from one ditch to the other because we've been so run over and so beat up that we bounce into the ditch of i got to take care of me and it's all about me. And then that's unfulfilling, so we bounce back into the ditch of being run over. Um, Lord God, I pray, Holy Spirit, as I say to him blue in the face, the devil's in the ditches. Lord, we truly love you and we love people. And God, help us to walk in that healthy, safe middle ground out of all the ditches, Father God. Just seal that up, Father God, in our hearts and minds and help us to understand what that looks like in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.